All right, well, if you will turn in a copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 25. Acts chapter 25, we're looking this morning at verses 1 uh, through 12. You know, we come to God's Word, and His Word is not like any other book. Because His Word, only the Bible, is the inspired Word of God. It is without error. Um... It is inerrant, it is powerful, and it's by the Spirit through the Word that God changes us. And so when we come to the reading of God's Word, we are to come in faith with the expectation that God's going to work in us and grow us in His grace. So hear now the Word of God from Acts chapter 25, starting at verse 1. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Thessus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. If there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him." After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his his defense, "...neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense." But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar." Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that in this time you would help us. We are your children, and your children um, are often plagued with minds that wander to and fro. So, Lord, I pray that by Your Spirit You would help us and focus our attention upon Your Word, that You would bless the preacher and the hearer, that we might be grown in Your grace. We need You, Lord Christ, and it's in Your name we ask it. Amen. You know, sometimes life can feel relentless, can it? In fact, the title of my sermon is Relentless. Sometimes life can feel relentless, like one thing after another. Indeed, as I've grown to be so old in my 37 and a half years, i found that there are a few times in which life doesn't feel relentless. It's kind of like saying, you know, when I slow down, I'll get to that. Has anyone slowed down yet? You who have retired, some of you are busier than you were when you were working. You know, there's that great slogan, nationwide insurance, life comes at you fast. I feel like sometimes that's like the, like I just ought to just tattoo that across my forehead. Like life is just coming at you fast. 
You know, certainly if we add up all the tragedies lately that we have been plagued with on the news, and locally, life feels relentless. Lavarius' death, there's an ATV accident this week that claimed the life of a man in his young 20s. There have been several motorcycle accidents lately that have touched our church peripherally. A couple automotive accidents have done the same, not to mention this uh, shooting in Texas, the death of loved ones, the funerals that we are going to, the relentless cycle of the news, the Ukrainian war, the shortage of baby formula, the oppressive effects of inflation, not to mention COVID. COVID seems to be some foreign word for relentless, or the amount of cancer, suffering, heartbreak represented just on the back of the bulletin. It can be hard not to feel overwhelmed sometimes. Life can feel relentless. You know, it must have felt relentless to Paul. Uh, Acts 24, 27 tells us that Paul's been in prison for two years now. Right? He's, he's going to have to, in our text, face trial for something he's already been tried for. And then he's going to be faced with being handed over to the very people who want to kill him. Festus, the new governor wants to do a favor to the Jews. And beyond that, we know from his epistles that it's not just the, the immediate burden of what he's having to deal with, but, but also the burden for the churches that he had planted. He wanted to go to Rome and then on to Spain to do ministry, and yet here he was, stuck seemingly in an endless, relentless cycle of trials and imprisonment. Has life ever seemed relentless to you? I find that it's, it's more or less I'm, I'm either coming out of a relentless season or soon to be heading back, one in, back into another one. Can you, can you appreciate that feeling sometimes? Well, from our text, we actually learn a lot of things about how to handle those seasons which feel relentless. Well, if you're joining us today for the first time in a while, how do we get to Acts 25? Paul has made three fruitful missionary journeys. Thousands of people have become Christians um, he's planted churches that will indeed plant other churches. Uh, the gospel is going forward. The kingdom is growing leaps and bounds. He had faced persecution and opposition many places and many times, but he did so joyfully as he rejoiced to see the gospel go forward. Well, here, um, relentless opposition has followed him, actually. He had gone to uh, Jerusalem to take the collection that he had been collecting for the poor in uh, Jerusalem. He'd gone there to worship, and this relentless opposition followed him. And these Jews from Asia, from what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, recognized Paul and either erroneously or uh, with a lying spirit said that he had brought a, a Gentile, Trophimus, into the temple, which was punishable by death. And the Romans were okay with that, by the way. That was the one thing that the Jews could do. They could kill someone who uh, brought, who came into the temple complex who wasn't allowed to. And so they seized Paul and they drug him out of the temple complex and they tried to relentlessly kill him. Well, we'll take up Paul's story in a second, but we should note that sometimes relentless seasons come from a situation in which truthful claims have no bearing on the situation. I think this is going to be more and more the case for Christians Rather than the facts, instead it's going to be what the culture says about us. Does, it, does that make sense? Well, you must hate so-and-so because I heard this, where 
There was this Christian this one time who did that, and then it's going to be applied to all Christians, and it's, it may become, instead of something tied to the facts, it'll become something that is just tied up to popular sentiment. And that, that's kind of what goes on here. Paul hadn't done this. Paul had been charged erroneously. He was innocent of the charges before him. You know, from his seizure in Acts 21, 28 until he's put on, on board ship in 27, 22, Paul will continually have to deal with these false accusations. And he'll have to do it again in Rome as he stands before Nero. But you know, church history is full of false claims against Christians. Uh, we should get used to that. Going all the way back to uh, AD 64, Nero, uh, Rome burned. And not just a little bit, two-thirds of Rome burned. You know what Nero did? He blamed it on the Christians. He needed a scapegoat. And then he killed just countless numbers of Christians. How? By crucifying them. There's a key passage that helps us with this. When facts are not germane to the suffering, to the relentlessness that we are going through. And it's 1 Peter 3, 17 and 18. For it is better to suffer for doing good, that it should be God's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. You know, as we think through Paul's situation, uh, there, was, there was a lot of injustice in what was going on in his life. And especially of our, many of our brothers and sisters worldwide, there is a lot of injustice, unjust persecution against them, and lies are brought up against them. Perhaps you've had those, I, I don't know. But there is great comfort for the believer that there will be a day of justice. There will be a day of justice. There will be a day when all is laid bare before the throne of God. Well, as we return to Paul's situation, he's saved by the chief Roman military official, the tribune, uh, Lysias, and he's taken to the Roman barracks. Now, at first it seems like a good thing, and it it is, and it's it's certainly God's providence to get where he is. But but do you know the, the next thing that Lysias tries to do is to have him scourged? And a lot of times people died being scourged with a cat of nine tails. Paul is able to save himself from that um, possible death by reminding him that, hey, I am a Roman citizen. I can't do that. But, but then he'll be carted away. The Jews are going to try to kill him again. He's going to be carted away to Caesarea for safety. And then he's going to appear before Felix the governor. The Jews couldn't prove any of their false claims against Paul. But instead of setting him free, what did Felix do? He kept him in prison for the next two years. Why? Looking for a bribe. I wonder if it was tempting for the Christians of that day to take up a collection and pay Felix off. I bet that would have been tempting, right? I mean, this guy can do so much work for the Lord if he just gets out of prison. So we'll just do this one thing that's underhand and it'll be all right. I mean, praise God they didn't. Now things are going to come to a head in our passage, which we'll see in a second. Right? There's going to be a, a shift in his relentless season. But then it will lead to another relentless season in which he will face imprisonment in Rome. But Paul, put yourself in Paul's shoes. We know that this season only lasted two years. But Paul didn't. Not in the middle of it. Felix didn't know that the season in which he was constantly bringing Paul before him to talk, that it was only going to last two years. The only reason it ended was because he was recalled to Rome for being too brutal. I imagine it was a surprise when this season ended. You know, one of the hardest things 
about those relentless seasons is not knowing how long they will last. It's kind of like when you're going on a road trip. Uh, we went to Kentucky to, for, together for the gospel, and it was, what, like a, a 10, 11 hours, I think? And it was a long trip, but we knew that there was an end to it. It's different when you don't know how long something's going to last. Because, see, when you don't know how long something's going to last, it shows in spades that you're not in control. Isn't that hard? That's one of the hardest things about these relentless seasons in which one thing comes after the next. And you just like to know, when will this end, Lord? And God doesn't tell you those things. But see, even though we feel that lack of control, the reality is that even when we feel like we have control, that really is just an illusion, isn't it? When is it that you're ever actually in charge of what happens to you? Never. We can control how we react to something. But the hand of God's providence, He's the only one that knows what He's sending your way. Are there times, are you in one of those relentless seasons? Chronic pain, health issues, financial woes, problems at work, problems at home, problems with the marriage, conflict in a relationship? Or just one of those seasons in which there just are no good answers. But you know, where's our comfort? We're not left without comfort. We're not. Where's our comfort? Psalm 121.1 I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Who is this one from whom we get help? He is the King. He is the King of glory. He is the one that when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to be afraid. Why? Because He is with us and His rod and His staff, they comfort us. And even in the presence of our enemies, He sets this great table, this feast before us, ultimately Himself. And He anoints our head with oil in our cup. It's not just a paltry amount in our cup. It's overflowing. Even in the midst of those relentless seasons. You know, as we think about Paul's situation, it wasn't some pesky, corrupt governor who had Paul's future in his hands. It was the Lord Jesus. God has a plan and it will be accomplished. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. This this great balm in in, in in, in the season of relentlessness. What does God say? I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What does he do? Declaring the end from the beginning. You know what history does? It declares what's happened in the beginning up until the end. God writes history backwards. He's declared what's going to happen in the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel, that is his will, his plan, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. You know, in Paul's life, in our life, what seems to be a relentless season of indeterminate length has been determined by God. There is an end. It might be heaven, but there is an end. There is a bookend of a start and an end date. 
But here's the uncomfortable bit. He has decided not to tell us when those days are. You know, I was thinking about um, when I was a kid traveling with my parents, and I, I just never worried about where we were. I mean, I wanted to know, but I didn't worry about how we were going to get there, the money for the food, where we're going to stay, what the plan was. I was, I had peace, right? Or maybe, this is my memory of it at least. Because they were in charge. They were in control. They had it all together. We are on this pilgrimage in this life. We are on this journey in this life. And we're traveling with someone far greater than Paul and Catherine Johnson. Far greater than your parents. He is not the one who is navigating circumstances that are hoisted upon him, thrown on him. He is the one who is navigating all history for your good and for his glory. Well, as we return back to Paul's story, a new governor has replaced Felix. His name is Festus. Festus is a better guy than Felix, but he's inherited a really bad situation, and he'll only be in power for two years. He's going to die in office, and then some even worse governors are going to take over, ultimately ending in um, a Jewish revolt that will end in the destruction of Jerusalem. It'll just be a terrible thing. Well, he's, he's inherited this really bad situation for Felix, from Felix because Felix was a really bad governor. Insurgents roam the countryside. There's political and social unrest. It's not a safe place. And so he arrives in this land, this Jewish land, and how will he get control over the situation? Whose help will he need? Well, he's got to have the Jewish leadership. They're the key to the whole thing. So immediately upon arriving in Caesarea, uh, the Roman capital, the province of Judea, he heads to Jerusalem the Jewish capital. He's going to meet with the Jewish leadership. And what we find there is though it's been two years since Paul's been in prison, the people, the Jews, are relentless in their opposition against Paul. Far from forgetting about it, it seems that it's been stewing. And it seems to be the first thing they bring up. In verse 3 we read, they asked for a favor against Paul that he summoned him, Paul, to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus doesn't do this. Um, either he heard, got wind of it, or the Lord changed his heart to head in the right direction. I, I don't know, but he, he won't give in to this demand. He's going to give in to other demands later. He doesn't give in to this one. He says, look, that's not going to work. doesn't work for me, but send men in authority over the situation with me. Isn't that interesting? That's the first, first hint that we, we understand that something's, this is not going to go well for Paul. Right? The prosecution is traveling with the judge. And they're going to head back to Caesarea. And so in verse 6, we read that Festus took his seat on the tribunal. Now, this is confusing. The tribune is a person, Claudius Lysian. The tribunal, tribunal, is a podium. It's a thing. It's a judgment seat. um, Actually, if you know anything about Revelation, it's the bema. It's the judgment seat where the governor would sit and he would render judgment. So he sits on the raised platform to render this verdict, and he calls for Paul. And the second, and we see a second time that things are not going to go well for Paul. Verse 7, When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Usually when someone is standing before a judge, he's not meant to be surrounded physically by those who are accusing him. 
The one person who had to be protected in this courtroom was Paul. He was a Roman citizen. These Jews were not. And yet Festus here, well, it's not heading in a good direction for Paul. Well, Paul is able to show that these charges they're bringing are baseless and without proof, just like they were two years ago before with Felix. But now Festus is changed, is, is faced with a really difficult situation. As one commentator put it, Paul's release was out of the question. Why would that be? Why would Paul's release be out of the question? Because if he did what was required by Roman law, which was to release Paul, he was innocent. There was no proof against him. What would happen? There would be riots in the streets. And he would no longer have the support of the Jewish leadership, whom he had to have their support if he was going to bring peace to Judea. Politically, it was an impossible situation. He seeks to do the Jews a favor. So what did he say in verse 9? But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? This would be a change of venue that would be detrimental to Paul's... Um, well, it would be incompatible with life. We'll put it that way. Imagine, if you will, in the 1880s in the South during Reconstruction, when the, when the Klan is running lamp, rampant, and if a black man stood before the Supreme Court in Washington... And instead of giving this innocent black man justice at the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice looks to him and asks him if he wants to go back to the Mississippi Delta for a fair trial. What would be the result? It would not be a fair trial. That's what's going on here. What is the application here? Oftentimes in the midst midst of relentless seasons, the question of, really? Really? This? I was just coming out of a bad season. Or I finally retired and. I finally feel like I've got my, my head above the water and. Or, or I, I, I'm already overloaded and now this? You know, it seems like Paul can't catch a break. Paul seems to handle himself really well, a lot better than I probably would have. What's our response to this? Well, pastorally, we first have to say that we are to weep with those who weep. When, when you see a friend who is overwhelmed by a relentless season, your first response is not to show up at their house with a theological treatise, right, and ten points of why this is good for them. Your first response is to follow Romans 12, verse 15. Weep with those who weep. Weep with those who weep. It's okay to weep. When bad things happen, when you feel overwhelmed, do you know what you ought to do? Cry. Cry. Someone once said that uh, crying is um, getting out emotions that words can't get out. I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds nice. Um, you know, Tuesday afternoon when this latest shooting happened in Texas, I got a call from a friend of mine who had some really colorful language about the kind of person who could do what he did. You know, and, and part of my, my preacher persona, persona thought, man, I, you know, that's probably not the best kind of language I should be using. Then I thought, you know, I can't really think of any better words. To weep with those who weep. It's okay to be sad. But we don't wallow in that sadness, right? We don't stay there. 
Just like we read in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we, 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 we mourn, but not as those without hope. Gene Weaver, we will, we will bear him this afternoon. And, and what's, what was amazing about Gene is he had a settledness about him. It wasn't uh, resignation. Right? Resignation is something like, okay, this really bad thing is going to happen and we're just going to have to get over it, get, get through it. That, that's different. Settledness, he knew it was coming. He could see through death. He could see past the Jordan. He could see what was coming and there was a calmness to him because he knew Jesus. And my friends, we know Jesus. I hope you know Jesus. If you don't, let's talk. See, God uses those seasons which seem to be relentless for His glory and the good of His people. And it's good that God does this even when our emotions are saying something else. Do you remember Joseph? When he was sold into slavery? First they wanted to kill him. Then falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, then imprisoned, then forgotten by the cupbearer. This was not, it's just a few chapters in our Bible, but it it was a long time in his life. And yet God would eventually use all those things to provide food for his people when the famine hit. I love how he puts it in Genesis. um, Well, I have 15, but that's not the right chapter. I think it's 48, 49, 50, somewhere in there. As for you, you you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. There's mystery there, how that works, right? We fast forward to the martyrdom of Stephen. Talk about relentlessness as as the Jews picked up those stones and relentlessly stoned him to death. And who was standing at his feet, even approving of his death? And it was Saul of Tarsus. Don't you know Paul thought a lot about that day? What about Paul himself, right? Here he is imprisoned, and yet Paul was using this opportunity to tell all these people about Jesus. We know that because when he gets to Rome and is imprisoned, there are a lot of people of of, um, Nero's household that are converted because he's telling everybody about Jesus. How else would jailers have heard about Jesus if God hadn't put Paul in prison? You know, some of the most impactful letters of Paul were written not for the comfort of a couch or a nice office, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Do you know where they were written from? Prison. Or as one commentator points out, if the pastor John Bunyan hadn't been jailed for his sound Christian convictions, we never would have had Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote that one from prison. So much of our experience of the... That it's amazing how the same situation can be handled by two different people so differently. And I think one of the key things is that of humility. Of humility. Humility seems to be one of the key ingredients to peace in hard times and actually working towards sanctification and growth rather than working against it. 
Romans um, 5 is a, is a, a very precious passage. Romans 5, verses 3 through 5. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Have we reached a point where we can rejoice in our sufferings? May the Lord get us there. Not necessarily in the suffering itself, but in the midst of suffering, right? More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Don't you want endurance? And endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I want the goal of sanctification. I want to be more like Jesus. I do on my good days. But I find that God usually uses those hard, relentless seasons to make that happen. It's like a pressure cooker, right? In which God says, okay, you think you're doing okay? Let me, put, let me turn it up just a little bit more. And then we find that His grace really is sufficient. Well, as we return to Paul's story here, we should note that Paul is no dummy, and God doesn't call us to be a dummy either. Throughout this whole process, he's been innocent as a dove, and now we see that he's wise as a serpent. He knows that if he is tried in Jerusalem, he will never escape. And he tells Festus that if he's actually guilty of something deserving death, he's not seeking to uh, um, escape from death. In fact, we read in Philippians chapter 2, or end of verse, end of chapter 1, rather, that uh, he sees death as gain, right? To die as Christ and live as gain. But he only has one option left, and that is to appeal to Caesar. This is what he says, I appeal to Caesar. What does that mean? Well, not everyone is a Roman citizen. In fact, very few people in Judea were Roman citizens, but everyone who was a Roman citizen had the right to be tried before Nero, actually before the emperor himself. And once these words were spoken, they couldn't be taken back. I've never been to a NASCAR race. Um, but, you know, once that green flag is waved, there's no taking it back, right? Or once the baby is born, there's, there's no going back. By these words, he has taken himself both out of Festus's and, Jew, and the Jews' jurisdiction. And soon he'll be put on a, a ship to head to Rome where he'll be imprisoned until he can appear before Nero. I think there are a lot of applications here. One for, I mean, we could spend a lot of time talking about Christians' use of the court system. But I think I want to look at it from a bigger perspective, and that's God's relentless pursuit of His glory and His people. See, Paul had a plan. See, this, this, this season, at least from our perspective, seemed relentless if we put ourselves in Paul's shoes. Maybe he handled a lot better than we, we would. But God uses relentless seasons as a part of His plan, of His relentless plan for his glory, and our good. We know this because God has, is not done with Paul or his story. Acts chapter 23, 11, Paul, Jesus stands next to Paul and says, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. See, here's the thing. During these relentless seasons of life, when we focus instead on the relentless season, but upon the one who is more relentless... Our relentless Savior, our relentless God. See, there is, there is someone far more relentless, dogged, persistent, and unflinching than whatever we're facing, and that is the Lord Jesus. The individual jigsaw pieces of our lives that He is putting together form the larger picture of what He is doing, not just in our lives, but in all of history. And God, indeed, God is so dedicated to His plan. He's so relentless, dogged in pursuit of His counsel, of His will, 
that God himself came to this earth. Can you imagine? It's the truth. The key to God achieving his plan is God actually coming into the world that was in relentless rebellion against him. So that we who in relentless rebellion against him might experience the love of God, the forgiveness of our sins, and the hope of the resurrection to come. You know, there's that key part of relentlessness, which is the indeterminate length. There is a season. Can we say it's determined length when we talk about eternity? It is determined that it will last forever. Right? It will never end. And this is a result of the relentless love of God for you. That we might have salvation, that we might have the hope of the resurrection, that we might have joy in Christ now and forever. So, my friends, as we live in a world that often seems relentless, let us in turn relentlessly pursue our Savior that we might finish this race well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Even when we run, especially when we run, we thank you that we are secure in you. Father, help us to run this race well, that we would keep our eyes not upon our situation, but instead upon our Savior, who has all things in the palm of His hand. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.